Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Cult Spark podcast. I am Bob Taylor, editor of cultspark.com and your usual master of ceremonies. However, this is not our regular podcast. Instead, we've got something special for you this time, as I interview Kurt Edward Larson, the writer and director of Son of Ghost Man, a new indie film that will be released online this Halloween. Son of Ghost Man was shot on a micro-budget with a tiny crew, and I thought it would be interesting to talk to Kurt about the challenges of do-it-yourself filmmaking and how he was able to realize his vision on screen with limited resources. He agreed to chat with me, and the resulting conversation begins right now. This interview sprung from an interaction that you and I had on Twitter where I made an offhand remark about a film that they were recently shooting in and around my daughter's preschool and just how huge and chaotic that that crew and that film set was as I walked through it. And you tweeted me back and said, well, not always. Sometimes you just need two idiots who refuse to say <laughs> it can't be done. <laughs> so I, I know you've been acting and writing for a little while now, but tell me a little bit about your journey from what you've done previously in the business to becoming a so-called strong-willed idiot determined to make yeah. your to determine to make your own feature. Okay. Well, I don't say that lightly either, idiot. I, I, I think it's important to like really set the tone for like, look, we really were idiots with so many of the things you have to do in the movie. Uh, as an actor, obviously I was lucky to be on sets like the terminal and jarhead and it's this massive, you know, amount of people and whatnot. And so I was writing scripts during that process, but wasn't making the headway I wanted to. Um, the short version of it is, is my manager, basically said, look, you write these kind of offbeat movies, you just need to make your own film. And I was like, oh, there's no way I'm doing that, because unlike everyone else in Hollywood, I don't want to be a director, per se, or at least didn't. Uh, so I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, I just want to write and, and act. But once he put the seed in my head, it was like, okay, I'm going to do this. So what you really, it was just starting off position by position. Okay, what's the basic thing? Okay, we need a script, obviously. So that was really easy. But when we got to the independent portion of it, it literally was just me and my best friend. So every job on the crew was done by him and I. Now, that isn't to say my wife didn't hold, you know, occasionally hold the uh, the clapboard or whatnot, which didn't even have an electronic signal. It was like literally whiteboard. Uh, or my sister did, you know, some of the catering or whatnot. But as far as anything creative or technical, it's just me and my partner, Gabriel. And so many of the times, honestly, Robert, we were figuring stuff out a week before. Or, you know, there's a scene in the movie where we have this terrible blood splattering, and it's supposed to be terrible for the record. Uh, that was the night before. You know, it was like, okay, how are we going to make this work? And we, like, went to the hardware store, and we're not those type of guys, and we're just like, uh, insect pesticide? That seems like it'll work. <laughs> Tubing? Sure. So it was Can very DIY, very do it Oh, man, every single aspect. Now, I, I don't want to completely say... I was a total buffoon. Obviously, I've held cameras before. I've done some shorts and things like that. But on this level, no clue what I was doing, man. I mean, literally the Goodwill hunting school thumb. Like, okay, uh, what camera should we get? You know, I'd go online for hours and research. And so naive and ignorant. Like, oh, it'll work out. It'll be no problem, you know. And it's so much different than when you actually get the equipment in your hands. 
and then you're just like, okay. Uh, you aperture? can only research it so much before oh. you're actually standing there with actors in front of you. and you have Well, to exactly. Work. And you're feeling totally uh, insecure and confident, like a combination of the two things. You know, like let's use the camera example. Like, as you know, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. So, yeah, I can tell you the difference between the various bounty hunters and the Galactic Federation and the Trade Federations, which to some people is bizarro. But when it comes to like aperture, shutter speed, focal length, I was clueless, man. I was like, I don't know what this means or how to get this together. So you would, you know, just research it and hope for the best uh, most of the time. Um, did you how much more knowledgeable on that stuff did you feel at the end of production as when oh, you started totally uh, a huge huge jump i mean i can watch the film now and obviously i'm i can see the flaws in it technically and those are usually the earlier scenes and things like that we got really you know at least competent by the end as far as some of the technical stuff the the, the problem was i went into it knowing that i felt the writing and acting would be its strongest but because I'm a perfectionist, by the end, I was like, oh, my God, there's a sound thing here and a color correction thing here. <laughs> and, you know, I had to have people remind me, look, you, you're leading with this stuff. That was why you made the film, because really, I could I could work on the film for another three years and spend X amount of money. And it's it's really not going to matter to a giant degree, in my opinion. You know, now you called it a two man crew. What's the name of your friend who who did it with you or uh, my friend is Gabriel Geyer, who probably had no idea what he was getting into. When he signed up, uh, and, it really started over a beer, if you and, want the truth. And how did you guys divvy up responsibilities? I get the sense it was your baby, so you knew you were going to yeah. write and direct. But past that, how what responsibilities were you able to pass on to him? or how? Because it was really just you two guys making a yeah. film, correct? So how did you divvy that up? Wow, this is where my real ignorance was come on. Originally, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'll shoot it. I'll, I'll do the sound. I'll do everything, man. It was going to be like a one-man Robert Rodriguez thing or something. And he's not even into film. That should be, you know, that's pretty important. And we were sitting around, and he has a background in, in sound to some degree. He did voiceover. He's got his own studio, and he's a musician. So he was like, hey, man, why don't I just do the sound? And it was just as simple as that. And was like, okay, you want to do the sound? And he also does website design. So all, it, it seemed we were really lucky in that all the things that it really I'm really deficient at, like he seemed to be able to handle. And it just was like a jigsaw puzzle. So he knew my vision and knew what I wanted to do and, and luckily agreed with it. <laughs> and so he would add things to it. But as far as divvying up, it just became, we really did everything together as far as scheduling and that type of stuff. But he did sound website design. We did casting together and I did the directing and, and writing and whatnot, but you know, he would add things in, you know, and, and I, I don't want to minimize his participation because it was pretty huge without him. It doesn't happen, you know, but so he did kind of the, those things. And by the way, generally kept everyone happy because I can tend to get a little uh, – I have a temper at times. Well, so. and plus I'm sure it was a high-pressure situation. So you have to have a good cop to your, your bad oh, cop. You don't even so just real quick, just show you the pressure. So at one point, you know, we're doing all these locations, guerrilla stuff. You see the film? Those are like all guerrilla, man. I mean literally just showing up and like, all right, we'll make this work. The only one we had in place was obviously the house. That's probably the biggest set piece we're there quite often. Right. That was the house that I was living at at the time. So we figured out oh, for those eight days, we're covered. You know, what could go wrong? We got those eight days down. And literally, and I could not make this up, the day before my neighbor has like this 100-year-old tree. So imagine like a giant, like, like kind of like a Disney Animal Kingdom, the giant tree in his front yard. Its roots had been pulling up his kitchen. So they had to get it removed and it fell upon the city gave them clearance for the day we shot. 
So literally for those eight days, it is like, I mean, six to seven chainsaws going all day long. I mean, how do you overcome that? Yeah, that's got to be I mean, Yeah, I mean, and I actually, I had a behind the scenes video. I'll put it back up at some point. But that's literally what happened. We would have to wait and be like, okay, we've got 20 seconds, go. And I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It was like, wow. do it, go, you know. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff we dealt with when you're doing a do-it-yourself like that, you know. Yeah, so um, we'll get more into the the process of indie filmmaking a little later on, but I, I, I thought we'd talk a little bit about the movie itself as well. Okay. Um, Great, Son of Ghost Man is about a 30-ish guy who's he's kind of lost in life, but then he finds an outlet in imitating the horror movie hosts that he grew up watching, the kind that used to be prevalent on late-night TV in the pre-internet age. Um, how and why did you decide to write a film based around the concept of the horror movie host? <laughs> okay, especially a romantic comedy, right? Yeah. That um, okay, well, the brief story is when I was a little kid in Chicago, there was a guy there, Sonas Fanguli, who was like the horror host guy. And to this day is, I mean, he's not, he's right there with Elvira as far as, you know, massive popularity amongst horror hosts. And, you know, the truth of the matter is my parents, you know, they work 60, 70 hours a week. And so they weren't home a lot. And I have a brother, one brother, he's seven years older. And, you know, the age difference between seven and 14 is just massive. And he was stuck with me all the time. And about the only thing we really connected on, was, other than baseball, was Sven Gulli on Saturday afternoons. Like, that was just the thing. This guy would come on and show these, you know, Dracula, you know, some of the better horror movies and then some of the bad ones, depends. And I was just transfixed as a little kid because I loved that kind of stuff, Halloween. And, you know, it was so neat and funny to me. And, you know, honestly, I obviously didn't get the humor at the time, some of the you know, mystery science theater-esque elements. I really just got this guy in makeup and I love these movies, Dracula, which of course to my wife and what seems archaic to her, she's like, you love that? I'm like, it's awesome. (laughs) And you know, she's baffled by it. But, um, and I always thought as I got older and kind of understood what they did and when they went away for a while, you know, I I thought, we've really lost something. You know, these guys, it's so interesting. They just put on makeup and they did these shows and you know, they're not huge celebrities and they they can't be making millions of dollars. They probably could have other careers making more money, sustaining a family, and they choose to do this. And I really felt that guys like that bring way more love and joy into the world than they probably even realize, quite frankly. I mean, it's things like that are hard to find these days. And I thought, oh, you know, at this age of my life, I have a lot of friends who do what I do. And we're all kind of, you know, trying to figure out life and which way to go. And I just thought it was an interesting metaphor and parallel. You know, it's also, you know, of course, got the metaphor thrown on makeup and you're not who you are and, you know, trying to be someone you're not. And like, oh, I could take a job at the cubicle or I could make this do it yourself movie and see what happens. We're going to get to some of the other things going on in the movie in a minute. But uh, as far as like the horror hosts go, there are more of them than I thought. Like you mentioned Elvira, who, who was pretty famous. And the one I remember was Joe Bob Briggs was someone I used to watch <laughs> as a kid. But I went like on the Wikipedia page just to look. And there is a lengthy list of names oh, yeah. that people used to do this, especially on a local level. Yeah. And, um, you know, like P.T. Henderson's dad was a horror host. Like, that's amazing to me. You know, like. Um, they're, they're, they seem to be predominant on the Midwest and the East coast even more 
so. But that was really fun, too, was giving people a script. And if you don't know who a horror host is, you know, you might not get it right away. But the people that did, they were like, oh, my God, no one's ever made a movie about a horror host. I can't believe they haven't done this. And it was like, that was really exciting. You know, when you got someone that knew a horror host, man, it was just a jolt. It was like, yeah, right? You know, it was like this small underground little click. Right. It's funny because when I actually watched the movie the other day, I found myself wondering, you know, are, are horror hosts really still a thing? Do people remember <laughs> that or still do that? And then just today I, I saw there's a local art house here in Pittsburgh that's having like a creature feature and they're showing creature from the Black Lagoon for Halloween. And hosting hosting the screening is a guy named Chili Billy who was <laughs> he was a local TV horror host here, I guess, in the 80s. And it's and it's just right. like, oh, wow, this is a thing that and even if you go to that Wikipedia page I was talking about, you see a list of names for the 2000s that do this. And I guess it's just a local thing or maybe they have web shows like the character in the movie. But it appears yeah. both this, both this kind of thing and fandom for this kind of thing, it, however small it is, apparently it's right. still indoors. Yeah, it's it seems like they've been getting a little resurgent lately. Like the guy I like, you know, Sonus Fanguli, he's on me TV like every week. So, I mean, he's on TV. Um, and, yeah, they do a lot of Internet things and there's a lot of younger guys trying to do it because, they, I mean, honestly, they could just put a camera in their home if they have a set. You know, it's not supposed to be special effects driven. Right. right. Um, so I am. It does seem like a little resurgence, and, and like I said, there's more out there than you realize, and, and you know, it's it's pretty cool, man. I, I'm very happy to contribute in any way. So, the movie also has a very 80s sort of John Hughes vibe, <laughs> and and like you said, it's you you actually identified the movie as a I think romantic comedy were the words yeah were the words you use. So how what was the inspiration, or uh, you know, how did you manage to take this concept of horror movie hosts and combine it with sort of an 80s John Hughesian type story? <laughs> I mean, they, you don't think this would be, <laughs> it would fit, but you you know you right. make it work. How how did you bring those two seemingly different ideas together? Um, I guess pure luck. No, um, you know, I'm a huge John Hughes fan. I mean, especially I should clarify early John Hughes. Let's, let's not talk about flubber too much. That's not at the top there. But I think like a guy like that, it's really interesting to me that his early eighties films still, you know, stand time, you know, they're, they're still there. They're still iconic and younger people even still find them and love them and whatnot. And, you know, they weren't exactly critically, real popular when they first came out. Um, so it's interesting to me that they've kind of stood up and I always try to write, you know, if I could do like a 10th of what that guy did or, or a little bit of like Cameron Crowe, same type of guy, I just like those worlds they live in and they seem to take, you know, they have two things I like. They, they have a line of believability. Like, they don't go the Matthew McConaughey, Kate Hudson, you know, schlocky romantic comedy where it's like you're shoehorned into a device like um, they tend to, to to ground it in reality while still giving you a little, I don't know if cheese is the right word, but they find their, they pick their moments to make it be like, all right, that main character did hold up a boombox, but that does work because you grounded it in believability. Um, so I try to write like that in general because I think there's a certain sweetness um, to it. And to be frank, I, I felt like romantic comedies were either one or two things recently. They're either the Kate Hudson, Matthew McConaughey archetype, if that makes sense. It does. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where you're just like, let's face it, you you hear romantic comedy, you're like, oh, God, I'm just – that makes me angry that, like, you know, it's become this disease-ridden word, like, oh, I can't watch a romantic comedy. That's atrocious. Or the other side of the coin is they were trying to be so hip that there was no happiness to them. You know, it was like – 
the ultra indie film that's like, oh, we're going to have this cool, interesting ending where someone gets dumped, you know, but they learn a lesson. Um, and so I wanted to try and make a film that kind of blended those two worlds while still having like, you know, a little Hughesian touch to it. Because the other thing he does so well, in my opinion, is every character has something. It can be a character with two lines and he doesn't throw it away. He gives that actor something to do. Um, you know, like, what is it? Uh, what's her name? Um, Cusack. Joan Cusack. She's Cusack. Got the big, in Pretty in Peak. She's got the giant, you know, thing on her head, the, you know, the retainer thing. And right. To, right. And it's nothing. It's never even really addressed. She's just there. You know, <laughs> right. She didn't need to do that. And, you know, every character he puts in his movies, they have something or some line that's like you can kind of identify with it, you know, and I wanted to do that. That's why. Even in my stock characters that really don't have an arc per se, I was like, well, let's give them, you know, like the exacts. I'm like, let's let's they're just massively in love with each other. And they randomly say things like that, you know. Um, so combining the two just seemed for whatever reason, because I write that genre in general seemed natural. And I just was like, all right, well, this is weird. So I'm going to do it. Did um, you talk about John Hughes and Cameron Crowe as being inspirations for the story you're telling? Did you have any? particular inspirations in terms of filmmakers as far as you going out and doing this on your own because you know there's always stories about right. these famous directors who made their name by you know self-financing their sure. own you know kevin smith to robert yeah. rodriguez to richard linklater i mean who did, did some of these guys inspire you or where did you yeah. get that idea like either yeah people do this this can be done absolutely well first of all i'm sure you and i could talk about our feelings uh, about kevin smith for like an hour we, uh, hey, we, we'll have you back we can do that someday because yeah, it's fascinating i got i mean good bad all of it in between yeah. anyway but it would be wrong to say him as a human being wasn't an inspiration. Uh, I do like some of his films, um, but he's very – a guy like him and Ed Burns was huge for me because at the time I was thinking about doing a film, you know, Ed Burns was on Twitter. He was doing Newlyweds, which I don't know what he said he did it for, nine grand or 11 grand, you know, whatever. I thought it was really interesting, you know, he was at the forefront of kind of being honest about it. You know, in a sense of, you know, one of the first rules I learned out here in Hollywood, and I thought it was so lame, man, I really did, was they were like, never tell someone you made a film for under a million dollars. And I thought that was so ridiculous. You know, I would think it'd be advantageous to be like, hey, I filmed this for X amount of money, you know, peanuts. I can do a lot better if you give me a crew or a right. budget. So but, but I that would be rational and sometimes that would be rational. Right. And luckily we're kind of getting to that. I actually feel like we're in the age of transparency. Like you can't lie anymore. Like, you know what I mean? You can tell someone your film costs a million dollars and they'll figure it out. It wasn't, you know, I mean, even Burns was like newlyweds cost 11 grand. Yeah. That wasn't with post. So let's, you know, that's a whole nother ball game. Um, but he was on there saying what equipment he was using and what he was doing. And basically the gist I got from it was like, look, if you're a writer that writes character driven stories, you can absolutely be bogged down in the fear and the insecurities of like, look, you're not going to make a David Fincher-esque picture right out the gate. So in your head, you're like, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to be hit hard on Twitter and Facebook or whatever. People are going to you know, come at me for color correction or this or that. And he basically was like, look, just make your film. You know, Just go and do it. You can actually do it with the tools today. And I actually you know, in my head was like, yeah, man, he's talking to me. You know, um, which obviously wasn't, but you know what I'm saying? I, yeah. It just got me going. It was like, you know, because I do believe in that. You know, I, I don't believe in the fear because I think I, I got friends, man, and they are the most talented cats in the world, but they will never make a film because they want 
a Christopher Nolan size budget and, you know, control. And it's just not plausible. Right. You know, and it, it drives me insane. So, you know, my thing was, if you're really into film, of course, you can spot flaws left and right. I mean, we can go watch a TV show right now. We'll, we'll find something. I guarantee it if we're really looking for it. But regular audiences, most of the time, just care about the stories and the character. You know, that's what they care about. And I thought, well, we can contribute something here and hopefully, you know, it'll make someone smile or, you know, be like, that's interesting or or maybe they'll hate it. And that's fine, too. Um, so I would definitely say Burns and and Kevin Smith is, you know, he's a big proponent of people doing their own stuff, too. And there's no doubt that 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 gets you excited. You know, when those guys are like, look, you can do it and you can be better than us. You know, Smith says it all the time. Getting uh, back to some of the tech stuff. So, I, I mean, I assume it's <laughs> fair to say that this thing was made on a micro budget. Yeah. So, I, I mean, did you did you beg, borrow, or steal equipment? Did you rent? Did you buy? How did how did you get the necessary tools together to direct this film? Okay. On, so, on such a tiny budget. Absolutely. So, without going off on a rant on Kickstarter, because again, we could go for hours, I'm sure. I was really dedicated, man, to paying for the whole thing myself. Like, it really was important to me. I have asked for money on films before, and it is the worst feeling in the world. I mean, this was pre-Kickstarter, but, I mean, it's a really bad feeling. So I was like, I'm just going to make it all myself. So we were talking about jobs we don't like to do. So um, I took a job. uh, I was a corporate trainer at a restaurant for, like, I don't know, two or three years. Maybe only two years. Um, And it was a pretty good salary, and I was single at the time. And I really just put all the money away. For the most part that I could and saved up and, you know, with the help of my wife's blessing, um, you know, got into a position where I was like, look, we're 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 getting married because I actually made the film. I was getting married. That's a whole nother topic. Uh, We don't have kids yet. Um, I want to do this, but, you know, it's going to take our savings, basically. And, you know, I'm lucky that I got somebody that supports me and was like, you know, go for it. I mean, I remember she said to me, what are we going to do? Buy another car so you can go to your job? That's ridiculous. You know, I mean, that was an awesome line for a wife to say. I was Definitely. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I could rationalize things in my head, Robert. I could be like, well, if I buy the camera, I won't never need another camera again, you know, or <laughs> right, to sell this if I have to. So, um, it was mostly saved money. Um, I was lucky to book a job on Harry's law in the middle um, and that helped out because when you're making a film for, you know, I mean, I'll be honest, I think our, I spent 25 grand somewhere around there. Okay. Um, you know, you get a five, six grand, you know, from Harry's law. Cause it plays, you know, in repeat, you get the full amount, right. You know, suddenly, you know, that's a big help. It's like, okay, post is covered. And the other thing that helped is because it was over a three year period, it wasn't like all of it went at once. You know what I mean? It was like, okay, we're going to start with the camera. I'm going to buy that and learn that. Then I'm going to buy some lenses. Then I'll do audio. And it was like chipping away. Right. Luckily, it all worked out. And, you know, I mean, that's just how it went, you know, technically. And then how did you go about assembling the cast? Did you know any of these actors before shooting? Did you hold auditions? How did you get this group of people? Um, It's a variety of both. Um, Carlo Marlin in the movie uh, is a friend of mine, very close friend. He was a groomsman at our wedding. And I just thought he plays a lot of like, uh, he loves to play. You know, actors, Robert, they all want to be Christopher Walken and like these dark characters, actors, you know, they love it, man. And I'm like, Marlin, if you did that in a comedy, I think you'd be hilarious. You know, um, and I just felt like nobody's ever shown him in that light. So the other actors were all auditions. We held, you know, several days of auditions. I want to say four or five. And mind you, we didn't tell them anything about a horror host in the auditions. We (laughs) wrote straight romantic comedy. (laughs) 
Exactly. <laughs> You're totally right. We literally, and I mean, we were really upfront. Like, this is what we're shooting on. This is the deal, you know. And as far as the main guy, you know, we the, we got down to a couple guys, and then we gave them the full script. Like, look, we told you there's a hook, or however you want to phrase it. Here it is. And Devin, who plays obviously Denny in the movie, the main guy, he was the first headshot I saw in the first audition. And it was just one of those things, you know, it worked out. And when he got the script, speaking of guys that knew, I'd be honest, it was a little like, I don't know if these people are going to know what a horror host is. And then I'm going to have to explain it. And that's weird. So, you know, insecurely, I'm like, here's the script, guys. Just let me know if you have any questions. It'll be okay. And he wrote me within 15 minutes, literally like one of those awful, obscene, all caps emails. Like, oh, my God, we had a guy in New Orleans called Dr. Morgus. I totally know who this is. And I was like, all right, great. I can talk to this guy. We got it. So, yeah, we did hold auditions. He, uh, Some of my favorite parts of the movie are when he's in makeup doing the show. There's a long montage. And I really like the the, the first scene where he first puts the makeup on. And he's you can tell he's nervous. And he gives a little cough. And you can tell he's getting into sharing these things he might not be comfortable sharing about himself. And he's also sort of feeling out the character. I really like that scene. So, you know, I, I'm guessing you were happy with oh man what he ended up you know doing with the character oh absolutely he was i mean he didn't know me and i remember he's got a baby and he was up for like one of those hallmark movies um <laughs> and he, he told me and i i you know i have no reason not to believe him he's like you know my wife and i talked it over and it shoots at the same time but we're going ghost man man that's just so weird and i just was like oh my god <laughs> and what he brought every day to trust me was amazing because we had a thing we talked about like we call that sitcom. -y. I was like, you know, how sitcom -y can you go? I was like, I oh, don't go. He was so worried. He's like, I don't want to look like a sitcom actor. And so I'd be like, you just got to go a little higher, man. And he was the rock of the cast. He was there all the all hours, never complained, you know, really got the character. I mean, really, you know, he made my job look easy. We talked maybe three times about like something he was unsure about. And like, you know, I mean, there's a cheesy line at the end. I don't want to give it away. Um, you know, it's a very cheesy, straight romantic comedy line. And I just smiled at him. I was like, look, man, we got to have one. You, you just got to do it. So and he, he did it. And, you know, I'm grateful he's gotten some attention because of the movie and whatnot. And I'm very, you know, happy for him because he's a great actor. And the fact that he's not going recognized drives me nuts, man. It's just <laughs> all a game of opportunities. I'm like, you are Paul Rudd, man. You could be Paul Rudd. Um, so he was great, man. No, he was awesome. Now, Kurt, in addition to writing and directing, you also are in the film. You play Dracul, another yeah. local horror host who is a wonderfully entertaining douchebag and sir and serves yeah. as the villain of the piece Shoot so, I said, yeah so how much how much fun was that and are you will you ever be able to live down those tiny red shorts and cape oh outfit God. that you're wearing at one point oh, that is gabriel guyer's fault i swear on my life <laughs> He originally was like, you got to go Speedo, man. And I was like, there's yeah, aren't no you in a jacuzzi in that scene or something? Like, yeah, it's a yeah, jacuzzi and like booty shorts. And it's it's pretty rough. And, and I'm not a fit man for those who haven't seen the film. Um, yeah, it was really, it, it was fun, Robert. But honestly, it wasn't as fun as it probably could have been if I was just playing the role. 
Um, well, yeah, I was going to ask you, did choosing um, to act in the movie on top of the directing and everything you were doing, I mean, how, how did that give you pause? How hard that, <laughs> how hard is that to say, you know what, I'm going to be in this thing too. Uh, I don't do it on purpose, but I'm a little like uh, my favorite Star Wars character, Han Solo. I really like to get in way over my head and let people know, oh, I got this when I really don't. And then kind of find my way through the asteroid field. Um, Cause everyone was like, you can't act in it. There's no way. And I just was like, well, I'll be on set every day. So I know I'll be there. And that actor's covered. It was very difficult because, you know, Gabriel was doing sound. So those days that I was, you know, um, in front of the camera, he would, I, he was the only one I trusted. If you want the truth was like to, to get what I wanted. And then somebody else would have to help sound, which would make him, you know, really nervous and, and insecure in one ways. And, you know, I'm not totally happy with with what came off, but there were moments that it's more fun to watch it now. Dude, yeah. I think you're funny in it. So, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, it. I mean, honestly, some of the times I laughed out loud was your stuff. So, oh, thanks, man. I, I've I've gotten I've come to terms with the fact that uh, I play good douchebags. You know, it's something you really don't want to accept in life. But finally, it was like, ah, what am I going to do? That's just what, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's more fun to watch it now. And uh, it was more fun to come up with the, some of the logos and, you know, the coastal count thing and whatnot. Right. Um, which I don't know if you ever saw King of Kong, you know, the documentary. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. The, oh, I love the, that thing. The Donkey Kong. Billy. Oh, What's his name? Great. Billy. Uh... Billy Mitchell. Billy Mitchell. That's it. Oh, yeah. amazing. And you can clearly see a parallel between the two films right off the bat. If you if you know that film. And I totally was like, oh, Billy Mitchell sells barbecue sauce. I'm like, your cool needs to sell something. So that's how we came up with like Sunday oh, lotion. That's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. That totally like, makes sense now. Yeah, I was just like, um, what would be funny? And I just thought, well, well, it's because you, you know, you have these guys that are running around in these very sort of fringe societies, you know, yeah. competitive video game players or horror show hosts, but yet they get, you know, they're extremely competitive with one oh, another, yeah. and so yeah, oh, that yeah. that actually totally fits. And local celebrities, and if you're yeah. from a hometown, man, oh my God, my mother. Every day is like we're having – there's this guy she's friends with. He's like a radio personality, and she's got to mention every time, well, we're going to have Tom Peterson from WGN Radio over. And it's like, Mom, you don't have to say that 30 times, but they love the local celebrities, man. It's like a huge deal. Um, so we tried to tap into that world too, you know, and mm -hmm. so that's what Dracul does. Was there anything in the original script that you had to cut because you just didn't have the money or the time or the resources or – no, um, we adjusted. I definitely cut some scenes and, you know, and I, you know, if anything, I'll sound cliche, but it's, it's the truth. As you're filming, you're kind of getting a sense of what's working and what's not. So, you know, as a writer, you have all these grand ideas. Oh, this will be a theme and that'll be a theme. So unfortunately, we did cut some stuff with uh, Claire and Zach that was probably a little more fleshed out just because it just became clear to me that, you know, the two things that you know, to me, we're jumping off screen were the romance stuff and then this weird, you know, other stuff in the in the horror host world. So I really focused on that. And it was no fault of the actors. They were they were doing great. But nothing major set pieces or anything like that. Like, despite the fact that everyone told me to cut scenes at the beach. Uh, no, I kept them all in there. And, uh, you know, we were just like, this is what we're going to do. Um, what ended up being the hardest part, do you would think of, you know, to tackling this with just a two man crew? What was the most difficult thing? <laughs> Um, from a technical standpoint, sound and gorilla environments were pretty, pretty tough. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you go to the beach, 
you go to hiking trails, there's planes everywhere. There's, you know, you can run wireless lobs, which we tried. And Gabriel wants me to implore everyone to never do that. Um, <laughs> The problem is, man, you bring out a boom in L.A., and this was part of what I'm saying was the problem. You bring out a boom in L.A., and suddenly it is like, I mean, everyone surrounds the boom. Hmm. You know, you can freely walk anywhere with a 7D, which is what we used, or a 5D, or these little cameras, and people just think you're a tourist shooting pictures. You know, they don't really know. You bring out that boom, and it is like the end of the world. <laughs> you know, and you can tell them, be like, it's just, a, this is a student film. <laughs> they don't care, man. Like Something we to see. Man, we were at Balboa Park and it's this huge lake and nobody's bothering us. The minute he puts the boom out, I kid you not, 30 people are crowded around and it's like, uh, we're going to be in trouble here. So I would say that was the most challenging part technically, um, for sure. From a personal standpoint, dealing with friends, uh, that can cause you know friction or it's a really tough line to tread You know, to make sure you're giving them respect and one up by still – you know, being in control at the same time. That, that's you, tough. You, you know, were talking right. friends that helped or contributed to the film. Or, yeah, helped, yeah. contributed, acted for sure. Okay. Um, you know, because I have various friends. As the, the main roles, the only main one, Carlo, Harold, um, Renee, those are all friends of mine. Um, you know, that can present challenges on set. And, you know, whereas if they're coming in fresh and they don't know you, it's different. You know, it's just it's a different feel. There's no question about it. So that was the challenges, I'd say. So now that the film is done and about to be released, how do you feel about the final product? Is it close to what you hope to your hope to achieve? Uh, is it close to your original vision? It is absolutely close, you know, to what I wanted to achieve. In many ways, it's it's better than I have. Now that I know what it takes to, to put it together by yourself, I'm amazed at like, you know, my friend Kirby said to me once, he's like, it's a good film, man. It's really good. Do you know how hard it is to even make a watchable film? Not even a good film, just a watchable film. It is so hard, man. So I'm more than, you know, ecstatic at the final product. Of course, you know, I'm a perfectionist. I certainly know, you know, where things could have been done better. I was like, oh, we crossed the lines in that scene. Son of a, you know, things like that. Um, but you just got to let it go. You know, I didn't want it to be. You know, Chinese democracy, Guns and Roses, where we just tweak it for, uh, you know, days. Like, it is what it is, you know. It's a micro-budget indie film with with a lot of heart. So I'm really happy. I'm, I'm so happy with it, man. It's 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 one of these things where his criticism is impenetrable to me. And I really mean that. Like, I just, you know, you get to a point you realize there's an audience, you know, for your various projects. Or, you know, like your podcast or whatnot. There's mm -hmm. there's there's an audience there. And some people are going to be like, yeah, I don't know why you're talking about Man of Steel for half an hour. You know, I'm not into it. Whereas, like, a guy like me is like, yeah, man, keep talking. Let's go. So you just get to the point you're so happy. You're just like, it, it, criticism doesn't bother you because you're, you know, you did it. You know, it's almost more about that you did it rather than the content. So I am very happy and excited to see what people think. And it, now I'm sure you've seen the final film a million times now. Is there any yeah. one thing you wish you could go back and change? Is there any oh, one yeah. thing that just sticks in your craw? Like, oh, I wish we could go back and. There, there is a scene, and it's kind of an important scene in a, you know, in a screenplay arc per se. It's the scene where Denny essentially stands up to his douchebag stepbrother. Right. And we had real problem that day. That was the chainsaw day. And, you know, they finally stopped and there was about uh, 45 minutes of light left and, you know, 45 minutes of light to shoot what is essentially in the original cut, you know, a five, six minute scene is really difficult. And, you know, it's one of those things. Technically, there's flaws in. I can see them. We did cross the lines in a couple of shots. And, you know, like my wife doesn't notice that stuff. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, well, you're not supposed to go over here and then here. It's a rule. You know, it's an important rule. 
Um, I would like to shoot that scene again. The actors were good. I just wish we had more time. And that's certainly the one thing that stands out from that perspective. But honestly, other than that, you know, I wouldn't want to reshoot it because you find when you reshoot things. And here's the other thing that's important that I think if you try to make something perfect under the terms that we did, you can really lose the charm of what can make it successful. You know, I think a horror host movie done on a studio level wouldn't have the same appeal. I honestly think it would turn into like, you know, Burt Wonderstone or something, which, you know, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> but you understand what I mean? It's like, yes, you it up and suddenly it doesn't right. have the charm. So in some ways, that's why you got to let some of the flaws go, because otherwise it ruins the essence of it. You know, I really believe that. Uh, so what's your hope for the film now? It's it's done. You're putting it out. Yeah. People, some people have seen it. More people yeah. are about to. What are you? Obviously, you're hoping you know as many people as possible see it and enjoy yeah. it. And anything more specific past that of what you hope for the? I life? mean, if you, and I'm, I'm not looking to make money or anything like that. That's the truth. You're right. I really want people to see it. It really is just a giant calling card for like these are the type of stories I write. I really would love to work with a DP, you know, uh, a crew that has some expertise. Because that's the other thing. When you're writing character-driven stories out here, the truth of the matter is a lot of DPs, they, how do they get excited about that, man? It's like it's about guys in a room, and it's like, uh, what am I going to shoot there? So it's really hard to get them on board. So I thought, well, if I go out and shoot and show them that I can write, you know, because I think, you know, writing is vastly you know, overlooked and underrated in the indie film world, at least on my, our terms. That maybe it would attract, you know, a bigger crew, more opportunities. You know, I would like to make more films on these lines, but kind of grow the crew and grow the people and grow the budgets. You know, I don't I'm not in it to make a million dollar film. That would be great. But, you know, just the next level. OK, what can we do with this amount of people and, you know, collaborating on that level? So, yeah, I definitely want to make more films of this ilk. Uh, but I just, you know, I want to meet new filmmakers and it's already started to happen. And it's, it's really cool when that moment happens. And, you know, the most supporting people have been fellow filmmakers that, you know, are maybe a notch above me. So that's what I'd love, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so tell the folks at home how they can watch oh, the Son of Ghost Man. So Son of Ghost Man, you can always just go to the website, sonofghostman.com. The movie, we're going to release it on Halloween. It's going to be on Vimeo On Demand. It's actually already there for pre-order you know, Vimeo on demand slash son of ghost man. It will be live on our website to purchase. It's four ninety nine, which, you know, isn't much. It's uh it'll be Halloween, you know, pretty much at the strike of midnight the day before. Um, and then it'll also be available. You can buy it uh, on Amazon. If you really want a physical copy, I would highly recommend you go digital route. Uh, you know, that's the type of film it is. And you save, you know, a ton of money, you know, DVDs, they're not even going to exist soon, you know? So that's, that's true. It's true, man. It's it's over for that, man. And the format's gone. So, All right. Well, that is all the questions I had, Kurt. Thank you very much for talking with me about Sun to Ghost Man tonight. I really cool, appreciated man. it. Yeah, man. I love your podcast. Oh, hey. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me tonight. Thank you, everyone at home, for listening. And we'll be back with a new cast real soon. Promise. Bye.